is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to one of the leading lights in the JC regional club scene for the Midlands, Jeff Johnston. Richard West and I talk testing, and Tom readies himself for the Castlecombe track day. JECpodcast.com Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Hope you're well and your Jaguars are purring as they should. This week, big news from JLR as they announce a facelifted and much improved, if it could get any better, XF with new tech on board, new looks and some new engine packages as well, including hybrid power. If that wasn't enough to satisfy us Jaguar fans this week, then they've only gone and done it again with two announcements in the same week. This time of another development involving the XE, which has had its interior equipment level increased, and now too sports a mild hybrid engine option as well. On the XF front, it's great to see actually that the sport brake looks like it'll be finally available in a petrol version. Something I know we've been waiting for for some time, and I think the new looks have given it a very sleek purposeful and modernised appearance. So really nice stuff from JLR, despite obviously some quite difficult trading conditions at the moment post-lockdown. You can see images and read the full spec on both the XF and XE facelift upgrades via the news pages of jc.org.uk right now. And also, as we crack on with the 27th episode of this podcast, just a massive thank you for continuing to listen and subscribe each week. We're just approaching our 5,000th podcast subscriber this week, thanks to it now being listed on Amazon's new podcast directory service. So if you're listening for the very first time, come on, say hello. You can see images, more information, and access our previous episodes, our virtual Jaguar show, and of course, Access the links to join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club via jcpodcast.com. And if you're wanting to know more about the club and the warm welcome that you'll receive into the international Jaguar family when you join us, we've got a great interview on the way with one of our regional ambassadors, Jeff Johnson, on this very episode. He's a top man, Jaguar through and through, and someone who works tirelessly to improve the experience of owning a Jaguar for our many thousands of members. And that is what it's all about, improving your experience, giving you access to things that you wouldn't normally have found if you just stuck to owning your Jaguar on your own without joining us here in the club. This week for me and the others on the events team here at the JC, it's been mad busy actually getting our plans in place for the Summer Jaguar Festival 2021. It takes place between the 14th and 16th of May at Haythrop Park Hotel and Blenheim Palace and we'll be celebrating 20 years of the awesome X-Type, 60 years of the graceful Mark 10, 70 years since the first C-Type win at Le Mans and of course 60 years of a true British motoring icon, the Jaguar E-Type. It's going to be an amazing weekend, not to be missed, and you can get your weekend packages booked now online at jec.org.uk forward slash festival, where soon there'll be news of our Saturday event at Bista Heritage, including track sessions for our weekend package holders. We've got guest speakers to announce, celebrities, seminars, and some exciting evening and daytime entertainment as well. Packages are limited and are already selling out, so make sure you get yours now, jc.org 
www.org.uk forward slash festival memories of motorsport richard remembers on the jaguar enthusiasts club podcast well on this week's richard remembers we're looking at what happens to racing teams and racing cars in fact in between the races we all see them out on track on a sunday afternoon but what happens in between those racing days what preparation and testing goes into those cars so richard obviously race day ends on a sunday afternoon the cars get packed away but they don't just go into a garage locked up till the next time there's a race to pull them out for there's a lot of preparation that goes into preparing those cars for the next race isn't there there is Wayne, and in fact, it's it's a 365-day cycle virtually. Um, I know you and I were talking a while ago, and you've had the same experience as me when you've been doing pit tours and garage tours. I actually had a lady ask me once, you know, she was a guest at um, Ferrari of Asprey, who were a sponsor at the time, and she very seriously said, "When you when you end the season, when you put those cars away, what do you do? Do you go off skiing until you, that the cars come out again in the summer?" And when I explained to her that that particular car had already undergone 147 detailed changes uh, up until the Monza Grand Prix that year, she just looked at me aghast and said, well, surely can't they make them more, more reliable than that? And I think what it is, people never see that actual behind-the-scenes effort so much. I mean, Sky and F1 are doing a great job these days of putting a lot of programs together but if you look back at the history of testing even if you go right the way back you know into the time when racing started michelin for example were the first people to really uh, work with you know a rubber tire compound on a racing car as far back as when renault won the first grand prix in 1906 and it's the manufacturers and the suppliers and the teams themselves who continually between races A, have to make sure that the car is prepared to the very best level that it can be. And secondarily, even when it gets to the track, you have to have a data line or a baseline from which to work. Now, if you look back in in my career period, certainly when I first went to Brazil in 1984 with Williams, we used to send a test team down to the Rio circuit, uh, the old circuit at Yacurapagua. We would send a full test team and a couple of cars down there for a full month before the first race of the championship in Brazil. And day after day after day, we would go round and round and round and round, assimilating data, trying different parts on the car. But of course, in those days, there wasn't very much, well, there was virtually no onboard telemetry or data that you could read back from the pits. You relied very heavily on the feeling that the driver had, the actual lap time, and just you know the experience of those people around you. But of course, now testing has become very, very much more restricted. So an enormous amount more work has to go on behind the scenes, which, as I say, people never see. Well, in-season testing has changed an awful lot, hasn't it? As you mentioned there, the restrictions have come in throughout the years um, to limit the amount of track time that teams can have, mainly due to the fact that it sort of levels out big budget teams against smaller budget teams. But also there's been a lot more technological development in in in-season testing where they're actually simulating more testing scenarios with computers aren't they they are indeed all of the top f1 teams now um their drivers use simulators extensively Uh, all of the teams have wind tunnels or have access to wind tunnels for their aerodynamic development although again the fia in an order to try and curb costs limited to a certain extent the use of wind tunnels And that was, to a greater degree, um, almost superseded by the use of CFD, which is computational fluid dynamics. You know, if you go back to those early 84 sort of tests, we would make two or three front wings. We would make two or three rear wings and splitters. And we would send those out in packing cases to Brazil and they'd be assembled and put on the car. And, 
the driver would say, or Keke Rosberg or Jack Lafitte, as they were in those days, would say, yeah, that's better, or no, no, not really. And then you'd put that in the back of the garage, or you'd phone the factory, and you'd have them make two or three sets. The advantage of having things like three-dimensional modeling and computational fluid dynamics means that you can design those things on CAD in three dimension, those components, whatever they are. You can actually then simulate the airflow over the individual parts, and you can actually simulate the airflow of the entire car when that part is fitted. But you haven't made anything yet. What you've actually done is you've simulated all of that through this program use of computational fluid dynamics. It's only then when those components are really if you like approved that they will go into production and then wind tunnel testing will take place with them as well and you're right what actually happens now so much of that is going on the whole time behind the scenes that there's almost parallel programs running to actually what happens on track at the weekends and also it's not just the cars of course that have been tested or trained or prepared for various circuits it's also the drivers and and they're subject to a lot of simulation as well i remember going to the facility at Brackleaf. they were having a laugh about the fact that they had a Alonso in there one day and they were playing a game where he had to be blindfolded and they'd run the simulator and he could feel all the corners and the bumps in the road and pretty much he could name every single track from the season just by feeling the, the bumps and the movement of the car because he'd spent that long on simulators and this is how they're training drivers now isn't it? It is. I mean, we've talked previously about the physical training regimes that many of, you know, well, all of the drivers now undergo through various um, physicians, doctors uh, and trainers. But the simulator really is an incredible thing. When they first came uh, to the fore, they, um, they had quite a few problems with motion sickness. A number of the drivers who got in them felt that they were really um, they weren't quite there they would get in them and they would do you know high speed laps and they would come out feeling very sick I think most drivers have overcome that now and the simulators have moved on an enormous amount in a short period of time I'm trying to think of the name actually of the sports car driver who um, who has the simulator company um, and it's Darren and I can't remember his surname isn't that terrible it must be a sign of age but I know he has now a major simulator company he, Darren Turner uh, isn't it Darren Turner thank you very much you just corrected no man there um, yes Darren's done an incredible job with his business and the simulator plays an incredibly important part because with track time so limited even on the race weekend you've pretty much got to know what your what your baseline is and what your setup is when you arrive at the track because again the uh, the regulations certainly within Formula One and other forms of racing now even mean there is a curfew. You can't, you know, we used to stay at the circuit sometimes all night and do engine changes and gearbox changes. That's now not allowed. You know, you have to finish at a specific time, and the car is effectively in park ferme until you arrive the next morning. So very very critical that that data is taken from the simulators onto the actual setup for the engineers to work very closely with the drivers. And of course, in-season test is one thing, but out of season, what generally tends to happen is they fly the cars and the drivers away to somewhere warmer so they can set up either a new car for the season ahead during the winter months or to pick up on some of the problems that they experienced during the previous season. And Jerez in Spain seems to be a popular location for testing these days, doesn't it? It is indeed, yeah. I mean, southern Spain, you know, Spain has always been the destination for cars and bikes and, you know, even some of the, uh, Paul Ricard has been used extensively by sports car teams as well in the past and I, I think it's essential because yes you do need some wet weather running but the reality is of course all the development that goes on in those close season months it's ideally placed to do that in a warm weather environment and those circuits uh, come to the fore for the teams in, in those times of year. 
Well, another fascinating insight from Richard West there from Stories from a Lifetime in Motorsport. And we continue with the motorsport theme now with Tom Robinson from Swallow's Independent Jaguar with his Motor Racing Diary next. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. So after the great results from Donington last week now behind us, we're actually full steam ahead preparing for our next event, which is the JC Track Day up at Castle Coombe. So today I thought I would talk through what's involved and what to expect on the day from a novice point of view, as I know taking your car out on track can be pretty nerve-wracking for the first time, but hopefully with a little bit of preparation and some knowledge, this will put your mind at ease. Now, first things first, you don't need any previous track experience. As long as you have a valid UK driver license, you are free to take your vehicle out on track. Now, it doesn't have to be a race car. Any vehicle is welcome on a track day, including all classics, modern and performance vehicles. Track days are definitely one of the safest ways to explore the limitations of your car, but I do always stress, you don't need to be blistering fast instantly. There is absolutely no pressure. Pretty much all race drivers and myself had to start this way. There is plenty of support also on the day, especially with the JC race drivers being present, and there is also ARDS instructors available to help. There will also be some novice sessions in the morning to ease you into the track driving up at Castle Coombe. Now, track timetables are pretty similar for most UK circuits. Signing on will be from 7, 7.30. You'll also need to get your vehicle noise tested on site, which will need to be under 100 decibel limit before you go out on track. Now, the driver's safety briefing will be from 8.30. Um, in this safety briefing, they'll discuss all the flag signals. You'll also get a good understanding of track layout, pit entry and pit exit. There's also some basic ground rules at most circuits, which will be your overtaking rules and what to expect. Now, from nine o'clock, um, I highly recommend this, especially if it is your first time on track or even your first time at Castle Coombe, they'll be doing a novice session, which will mean you'll be able to follow the safety car at a steady pace. Um, and this will give you a good understanding of track layout and track conditions before the normal sessions resume. Now, car preparation for a track day is pretty simple. As long as the car is in good condition, there should be no major problems with using it on track. It's always an advantage if it's had a recent service, but regardless of this, you should always, always check the fluid levels are all at their maximum, and tyre pressure should be set at the manufactured recommended levels to start with. Now, inside the car, just make sure there are no loose objects that might fly around. You don't want to get anything stuck under the brake pedal or throttle cause you any issues that are on track. Now, I can help with more advanced setups and recommendations if needed. Please feel free to drop me an email, um, which is inquiries at swallowsracing.co.uk. Now, we're planning on taking a number of our race cars, such as my XJR6 that we've been talking about in the podcast here. Um, we'll also be taking a couple of the XKR Palmer cars, and we also have a Jaguar JP1, which some of you may have seen, and we'll be doing passenger rides all day, which you can book on a day, or I believe you can do this via the JC website. Now, there is also going to be some track displays over the lunch break, um, which should be pretty good. Now, if you have any further questions or would like to make a booking, feel free to contact Colin Porter at the JC. Um, and next week, we're going to run through some more detailed car preparation for the next round, which is actually conveniently up at Castle Coombe. So hopefully we'll see some of you up at the track day on the 20th and look forward to it. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk.
This week on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we're talking to a very long-standing member and one that is a leading light in the central region. And it's really nice to be talking to uh, more of our regions here on the podcast, learning more about what happens out there in the club here in the UK. I'm joined on the podcast by Jeff Johnson. Hi, Jeff. How are you, Wayne? Nice to speak to you, mate. Last time I saw you uh, was out at Salon Privé, and what a day we had. Oh, that was absolutely fabulous. I mean, it was a shame the weather was a bit windy, but uh, the cars, uh, I'm still waiting delivery of the helicopter and the speedboat and the, uh, uh, dare I say, the uh, Bugatti Veyron. <laughs> but that is a day that every Jaguar enthusiast has got to put on his bucket list uh, because it's just a superb day. I, I got back, I did a bit of a newsletter to the lads and I just says, uh, you can show you the photos, describe it, you've got to go there to get the, the gist of it. It's like going to a live concert. If you watch it on the TV, it's at the same. Uh, you've got to be there and be a part of it to absorb the tremendous atmosphere that it was. Yeah, absolutely. And wasn't it nice just to get out at last and have some shows oh, after this horrendous year? That's it, sir. We are in Central Region and West Midlands, a very active region. We generally do about like 30 shows a year and we do about 10 or 15 runs. We go abroad, uh, we go to France, Belgium, uh, all over the country. Uh, we've got a good bunch of lads and uh, lasses here at uh, Central. Uh, and like I say, we go everywhere and we've done two shows this year. Well, I've done two shows, which was basically uh, both back-to-back as well, believe it or not, with Salon Prevy and... Uh, uh, Pistons of Props at Northampton, that's a superb show to do as well. And that wasn't uh, highly uh, attended like it normally is. But it's still a cracking show to go. We did a few couple of runs with a couple of my mates in the uh, summer months where we just found up and sort of wave past each other and go down the country lines and uh, end up in a pub and have a quick drink and go home. But very, all of us, we've all missed the car scene tremendously. I feel sometimes as if I've had my right leg or my left uh, arm cut off. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And as you say, Central Region such a really active area of the country. And uh, we'll hear more about the sort of things that you do as a region and how you, Jeff, are instrumental in organising much of that. But let's start with you and let's go back way back in time to your early growing up in the Midlands there and your earliest memories of seeing Jaguars around the place as a young boy. I lived on a on a brand new inner city housing estate in Birmingham. I'm a Brummie originally. Uh, I still get called a Brummie now, even though I've lived in the uh, West Bromwich for 42 years. But I had mates at school. My dad was a, a Rover man and he had a Daimler V8. Uh, and my mates' older brothers, they had, uh, like, sort of in the early 70s, they had the remnants of what was left from the early 60s, i.e. Mark IIs and E-types and things like that. And we all thought as young kids, oh, that they pulled the uh, the uh, the cars, pulled the girls sort of thing. Like, I remember getting in my, in my mate, uh, the Robert Donovan's brother's car, they had an E-type. There's no flaws in it. You know what I mean? That was that rotten. And those, like, sort of, they used to change hands for, like, £100 or... 200 quid or something like that. And I worked for a guy in the Bullring, uh, that was the early 70s, and they had a beautiful maroon 3.8 Mark II, and it was absolutely beautiful. Wire wheels, I wouldn't say it was concourse, but like for the every else car, that when that was on a, a road full of cars, it, it let out and it hit in the face, because obviously the crown was there, the bodywork was there, and it wasn't your sort of your, your usual sort of early 70s, uh, knacker can I say like you know what I mean it was a beautiful car and I suppose that's when I look back at it that was where it all started from and were Jaguars 
a passion of yours from a very early age or was there another mark that sort of took your fancy first of all uh, I liked them all. I loved the E-types and whatnot, and I didn't know a lot about them. But obviously, when you're a young kid, sort of 18, 19, and uh, you just like uh, learning apprentice, I worked in the boring, and my me, me dad was upset over that. He said it was uh, making me a bit too uh, cocky for myself. He said, I wanted to learn an apprenticeship. So I did that, and uh, the company I worked for went bankrupt. I went back into the, uh, the market trade. Uh, I had uh, Volkswagens and stuff like that when I was a kid. Always wanted a Mini, but uh, but Jags in them days, I was like sort of. I bought my first uh, car. Uh, my grandmother bought it for me. Uh, it, it was a, a proper jalopy of Volkswagen 1200 Beetle, and you had to sort of uh, rev the car up or get, go as fast as you possibly can at night time. Otherwise, the lights used to die down on you. Like if you pulled up to a set of traffic lights, you could see further than the uh, uh, bumpers, like. Uh, so I couldn't afford a Jag, but I, that, that was always there, I, I suppose, at the back of my mind, where I thought, well, I want one of them, I want one of them, like, and them are the cars to have, like, and uh, my old man always used to say, wishful thinking, son, wishful thinking. Were they fairly common on the roads in those days, Jeff, in that part of the world? I mean, I, you know, I know, I appreciate a lot of them were a bit rusty and down at heel, but obviously they were made just down the road. Well, did you ever have the feeling that you were near the factory at that time? No, no, I mean, that was, I lived on an estate in uh, a place called Highgate, and all my mates' dads, my parents was uh, publicans, uh, and all my mates' dads, they all worked at the Rover and the uh, Austin at uh, Rubery. So they had all sort of like sort of the usual cars of them days, like Ford Anglias, uh, Princesses and Minis. Uh, anything that was sort of cheap during the, the, the day that they bought. There wasn't many of my mates, uh, dads who had brand new cars. A couple of lads at school, uh, their dads, uh, one was a scrap merchant, he drove Jags. I always remember him having a, a Series 1 XJ6. And as a young kid, you look at these sort of cars on TV and they stand out. And then there was always the, one of my favourite programmes, the Sweeney. You know what I mean? How many Mark IIs and S-types did the Sweeney smash up? Like, you know what I mean? Every episode one was smashed up. So that was like another spectrum of looking at Jags in my life as well. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, you eventually went into the pub trade yourself, didn't you? And there's quite an interesting story as to how that sort of bit of your career grew. It just by pure mistake. I didn't, uh, I was a carpet fitter and I didn't sort of really know where I wanted to go in life. I was, I was sort of uh, 18, 19. Obviously, I'd always been looked after me uh, by my grandmother. So I was obviously very close to her. Uh, I came home from work one day and my dad says you better sit down I thought oh they're going to tell me they're getting divorced early. he said I've got some bad news for you I thought oh blimey here we go he said I'm sorry to say he says your uh, grandfather's uh, passed away this morning he says and uh, he said it's uh, uh, payback time I said what do you mean if you know all them uh, shirts and train sets and bikes and 20 pound for your holidays and the, the car outside you've got and all this that and the other I said yeah he said, it's time to pass. I can't afford to pay all that back. He said, no. He said, I mean, this is your, your nan's hour and age. You've got to go and help her in the pub. The last thing I wanted to do was, uh, I never even drunk them days. Like when I was an orange juice kid. And uh, so I jacked my job in. I worked uh, in the boring uh, of a weekend and for a, a local pop company, uh, Mason's Poppers, a van driver's mate, which I enjoyed. So I jacked my job in and uh, went to work for that. And I just loved it. And I never... T- t- turn back like you know what I mean and that's what I love about life is is you just sort of dwindling out of those little lines and things happen and you think well what would have happened if that didn't have happened 
what would have happened if my grandfather hadn't died like you know what I mean I would never have been where I was today well I get the feeling Jeff in life you tend to throw yourself into it and if you do anything you, you're going to throw all your effort into it and do it well because you didn't just end up as a public and you ended up owning three of the things didn't you eventually yeah well, I, well, I ended up owning three pubs uh, 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 two of them was uh, rented off breweries and one was my own. Uh, there was a, another pub next door, which I ended up buying that one too. I ended up buying some land on the side, and I, I created one of the biggest pubs in uh, West Bromwich. Uh, and I was lucky uh, there to sort of start me uh, jag world off. Uh, and I was lucky where I retired at 40 as well. But my jag life started sort of, I would say, about uh, very late 70s, early 80s with an old mate of mine, Tony Demicoli, which was our chairman at the time. Was it ever a driver of yours, an ambition that sort of drove you along to earn the money to get yourself a Jaguar one day? Was that always in the back of your mind? That was always on the back of my mind because uh, by that, like the early 70s, uh, the, the, the late 70s and whatnot, I was doing okay and I'd got a couple of quid in my pocket. Uh, then obviously in those days when you learned uh, you either buy a new car or you get a tax man, so you bought a new car. And I had like four Granada, two eight gears and whatnot. And then uh, one of the lads says, uh, the gaffer at work selling his Jag. I said, what is this? He said, it's an XJ6 or something like that. I said, uh, how old is that? He said, I think it's about four years old. I thought, that's a bit out of my price range. And I said, what colour is he? Blue, which is my favourite colour. Ever since that car, incidentally, I've always bought blue cars as well. Uh, and I said, I wouldn't mind a look at it. He says, oh, he says, I'll, I'll tell him I know somebody's interested. Anyway, a couple of days later, we bought the car around and we did a deal. I think it was about like sort of about 4,000 quid at the time. Like I can't remember, which was a lot of money uh, for me in them days. Uh, and I had the car and I just thoroughly fell in love with it. Like, you know what I mean? Uh, I, I think I paid about a thousand pound to insure it, which was way out in his day. I can't remember what I paid out. It was like three or four times more than what uh, my normal car was because of my age and my uh, job. Uh, but I, I just thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. I thoroughly enjoyed that, and that's obviously where then the passion of uh, the car sort of really came from. Uh, and I'd got to the part of my life where I could afford one, so I bought one, uh, and that was it. And then I've had loads of Jags ever since. Like you sort of, you just go into other stuff. Uh, I sold that. I had XJSs, XJ40s, X350s. Uh, I bought it. I mean, that was a good little story. The X350. I bought that. And it was the managing directors of the uh, Burton on Trent Brewery, and it had done something like I think it had done up to like hundred and twenty odd thousand mile. If the car and the car was two years old, if the car had been like a, a two year old car, it'd been like sort of thirty forty grand's worth, and I give eighteen grand for it. Uh, Nigel uh, thought he did an article in the uh, magazine on it. Uh, it took his out to David Marks because it was a, such a high mileage car in such a short time. He uh, MOT'd it and uh, did a blowback test and everything. It came out like a brand new car. So that had been well looked after that one, had. Is there a particular car that you've owned throughout the years that you look back on and think, oh, I really wish I hadn't sold that one? I think we've all got that situation. There was, uh, when I look back at like, uh, I was buying uh, E types for like sort of four or five thousand quid and selling them. And, Obviously, as the years went by, every year he was making a little bit of money, so it wasn't like you bought a normal car uh, uh, and the residual value came crashing down a couple of years later. So out of all the, the, the E-types, Mark IIs, Diamonds and whatnot I had, 
yes, uh, I would have liked to have kept all of those. A couple of the cars which do come to my mind was I came across an Aston Martin DB6 Volante, which I bought. And uh, I loved the car. But it kept breaking down on me all the while. And uh, that was the car that I let go that I shouldn't have let go uh, because obviously about 18 months later, I think I bought it for 11,000, sold it for about 13 and a half. And then uh, 18 months later, that was up over the 100,000 pounds. I just went like absolutely crazy in price. And the other one I bought, which was off an old member of uh, Central Regions, a guy called Teddy Burford. And the car belonged to, do you remember the old uh, Rainmac company called Dax? It was a, a big company in Birmingham. It was the managing uh, director's car there. Two owner from new. But you got a 3.8 triple carb E-type engine in it. The guy uh, before Terry had, uh, was a speed freak. And he, it was uh, Opalus and Silver Grey with a 3.8 triple carb E-type engine in it. And that was absolutely awesome. And that was one of the reasons why I sold it, because I thought, well, if I keep this any longer, I'm going to kill myself in this, because everywhere you want, you went, you're just doing 100 mile an hour, and it like it. I was very, very lucky. I never, ever got a speeding ticket in that car. That's what another car that I'd forgot all about and uh, just remembered uh, about that. You also tell me a lot about uh, the Jaguar scene in Malta in the times that we've met previously. And uh, I know that you spent some time over there and made some really strong friendships, didn't you? Tell us about how that came about. When I was a kid, uh, I used to go over there with my parents and obviously when I ended up in my teens and uh, early on in life, I didn't go obviously, but my parents still went there. But there was a lot of Jags over there left over from the uh, forces guys, uh, sergeants and RAF people. The Jag scene in Malta is absolutely phenomenal. There's uh, a lot of money over there and some beautiful, beautiful cars. And I mean, uh, concourse cars. Uh, my two best mates in Malta is uh, Charles and Clayton, uh, father and son. They live in Nasha. He's got about 30 Jags. He's uh, well into his 70s now, uh, retired. They call him Mr. Jaguar. Anybody who's got a Jaguar on Malta always went to Charles uh, to have it uh, messed with. He used to service them and things like that. And he'd got a garage. And I mean, when I say he threw nothing away over the years, but just as now he's emptied all his garages, he's retired and he wants to enjoy his life now with his wife and grandchildren. And he has permanently worked on Jaguar cars from like sort of eight of the morning till uh, eight, nine o'clock at night. And his wife was a, and I mean, a proper Jaguar widow. You know what I mean? She never seen her husband for 50 years. He was always in the garage. But he, he loved it all as well. And he's got uh, an XK150S uh, that he bought when he was a young lad off an X-Forces guy over there. And I think he, he paid about 120 quid for it when he bought it. And he was like one of the Flintstone cars, obviously, because he got no floors in it and whatnot. And he rebuilt that. He's got XJ6s. They love uh, Mark one, uh, ones out there. Clayton, his son, has got a beautiful Mark one. Uh, they use it regular. Another uh, a guy over there... Uh, uh, Chris Garcia, he's got about 11 concourse E-types. The island is just full of Jags. Well, all 60s cars. They love 60s cars. They have big concourse things over there. Central region, we've got, uh, we've been to the concourse meetings over there. And we go, uh, the last two years, we've done the, the Grand Prix there, which is all uh, vintage racing. A uh, guy brought there, he races over there. A lot of uh, Tom Kent 
he's over there he races and that's a phenomenal uh, weekend to go to some phenomenal cars there I mean you mentioned the XK150S the famous model for uh, the version of the XK150 that had the C-type engine in of course and uh, gave it just that extra performance so yeah some really nice cars out there by the sounds of it you could name every Jaguar and that one of those cars is on the island uh, one of Charles's uh, friends he's maintained the car for donkey's years it's uh a one owner Mark 8, and it is absolutely gorgeous. It's never been uh, messed with in its life. Uh, he's just put a new uh, starter motor on it. Uh, only last week, so I was speaking to him the other day, and that's owned by a, a very wealthy gentleman over there, but it was his grandmother's car, and it's come down, and they wouldn't sell it for like a million pounds. But where else would you find, I think it's at about 40,000 miles, original one owner mark eight jaguar you wouldn't find that in the world again i don't think obviously a great community that you found out in malta for jaguars but the community that you're best known for being a part of is of course the jc central region and i know a chance meeting with uh, tony demicoli was what started it all off so tell us the story of how you became involved with the jaguar enthusiast club all that time ago I bought I bought the Series Three and then I, I got it on the car park and, uh, and the other uh, uh, best mate Ian he got a a, a three eight Mark Two uh, he sort of went past oh I bought an S type Jag as well which th- there was a door missing off I believe it's all now and uh, I got it covered up obviously he went past the car park a couple of times and seen me cars he asked a few questions and uh, uh, found out I was obviously just starting off in the Jag world, the same as he, uh, he he was. And he came in to talk to me, he says he's the, because I was only young then, I was only like sort of late 20s sort of thing. He said, he's a gaffer, and I said, oh, are you speaking to him? He says, oh, he says, I've just seen your Jags on the car park. So, oh, lovely, he said, you're a Jag fan? He says, yeah, yeah, he said, I've got a Mark too. He said, I've come up in it. Well, we went on the car park, like when uh, we got lost on there for two hours, like as you do. And he said, like, I go to a Jag club over uh, Coventry. I said, well, what you get up to there? Like, he says, well, we have a bit of a, a day out. Uh, we have meals out. Uh, this was when the Jag club was just in the uh, starting uh, stages. I said, well, I said, I'd love to come to one of them one of the days. He says, yeah. He says, I'll find out when our next meeting is, and I'll let you know. So he let me know when the next meeting was. And uh, we went over to Coventry, and I met Tony Demicoli over there. Uh, and there's only like a couple of guys over there from uh, Coventry and most of them was all from like sort of the black country in Birmingham uh, anyway that went on for a couple of meetings I didn't go to another couple of more meetings but I kept up well with uh, Ian and uh, Tony and then uh, Tony said this is a bit stupid this is us going all the way over to Coventry when there's like eight or nine of us going to Coventry and there's only like a couple of them lads over there from Coventry so I said uh, should we have a go at starting our own uh, club up I wasn't much interested in that day, but I did enjoy the life of uh, knowing what was going on, where to take your car to be repaired and uh, where to get second-hand spares from and things like that, because obviously they were still very expensive uh, spares and everybody likes to save a bit of money. Uh, anyway, they toddled off and went our own ways and then Tony uh, found me up uh, one night and said, uh, uh, we sorted it all out. He says, we've got uh, uh, about 150 quid in the kit he worked for uh, Bass Mitchells and Butlers as a catering manager, and he got used to one of the uh, conference rooms at the Hawthorns uh, pub, uh, which my grandparents incidentally kept when I was brought up there. So that was a bit of a uh, nostalgia as well. He said, I've got a free room there. He says, I found up uh, the uh, uh, Birmingham Mile. I said, well, I know a couple of lads who work for the uh, Express and Star. 
I found them up. They came and did an interview with Tony and a couple of the other lads. And off the club went. I went to the club. We used to have like Sky Electric nights and uh, things like that. And uh, always used to get to uh, have an annual run out. And in them days, there was about eight of us started that club up uh, with the help of the Express and Star and the Birmingham Mail. Uh, did a lot of adverts and a lot of publicity. And it sort of growed and growed and growed. And it was up to about like sort of 30 members. Uh, obviously, all the, the 60s Jags, Mark IIs, Mark Tens, a couple of E-types. Uh, not so much uh, new cars, because uh, obviously uh, uh, people couldn't afford them. It was just like the sort of uh, classics as such. And you think that's how the, the clubs changed a little bit? Because in those days, it was mainly the older ones. But I'm guessing now you have quite a big contingent of newer Jaguars turning up. Yeah, well, when I look back at it, funny enough, Central region, over the winter months, they were going to uh, uh, knuckle down and uh, uh, re-strategize, or whatever you call it. And uh, we're changing all our uh, advertising stuff and that. Now we've got David Manners to sponsor us. We're having new leaflets done. And I was talking to some of the lads the other week, and I said, like, when I uh, joined the Jag Club, it was like sort of uh, cars that was like 15 years old or like maybe 20 years old. So now, when you look at the, the cars of today, which is in our club, which is obviously the classics are sort of going out because a lot of the lads as well have sold the classic cars because uh, obviously they bought them when they was cheap and they made big bucks on them. One of the lads in our club, um, uh, uh, um, Malcolm uh, Ashby, he had a, a 38 Mark II Roadster from when he was a kid. Uh, went through a divorce with it, uh, kept it, restored it twice. And he sold it about three years ago at the uh, Silverstone NAC auctions for 190000 And he bought an, a brand new F-Type out of it and a, an XF shooting brake. So he was deliriously uh, happy with the uh, cars he's got now. But he says the, uh, the passion for the E-Type didn't uh, do nothing for him. He says I didn't, he hadn't got the drive to sort of take it out. So that's the reason why he sold it. But he absolutely adores the uh, F-Type. He, he loves that. And yet, a lot of our cars now are uh, what we call modern, but you don't realise they are 15 and 20 years old now. So it's only, the, it's only the same as when I was a kid. What they're doing now, they're buying 15, 20-year-old cars, which is like X, early XK8s, uh, uh, XJSs, uh, X350s, uh, XJ308, that sort of stuff, and X, uh, XJ40s. Well, and that's the thing, isn't it? The Jaguar Enthusiast Club has always sort of championed, really, those entry-level Jaguars, for want of a better phrase. It's the cars that you can actually afford to buy, come out and use and enjoy and be part of that sort of family, that's, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. We went through a stage, as everybody knows, in uh, probably about sort of 10 years ago, we had a massive influx of X-Type and S-Type uh, owners. Uh, I don't know why a lot of them uh, went by the wayside, which was a shame because I know sort of some people sort of took the mick out of the X-Type, but the X-Type is a, a beautiful little entry-level car, and you can have a lot of fun in those, and the S-Type's a, a nice car as well. And same old story, when people sort of get the bug of the car, they move on. So, like, we need all these young'uns coming through to sell our cars onto and keep the passion alive. And a lot of the X-Type owners, when I look back at our club now, them lads are now into sort of X350s or... Uh, 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 cars like that and uh, modern aluminium XKs that they got cars like that now but they did start off 
with X-types and S-types. That's how the cars have changed over the last few decades, but how about what club members are looking for from the club's activities? Have you seen a big change in that, or have they more or less stayed the same? I think there's been a massive change in it. Uh, that's why I uh, I got on with the... Uh, uh, when I was asked to sort of join the National Club as an ambassador, I joined as an ambassador, uh, which I think that's uh, a brilliant way forward for the uh, club. But as far as the members go... It has changed because when I joined the club, it was like sort of one night a month and a couple of Sundays. Now, we've got a lot of uh, guys in our club and it, it is your life, you know what I mean? It, it, it's sort of how it takes your life. It's like being married uh, in a funny way, like, you know what I mean? They sort of marry the club and whatnot. Uh, and they have a tremendous... And, and it, it is the social life now because obviously there's that much going on. I mean, I could keep you talking for hours. We went on the F-type uh, uh, regime the other week with uh, the Jaguar Experience team. I've done the XK, the F-Pace, the uh, I-Pace, and I've done the, the F-type twice now, uh, where they take you to Fernand and different race tracks, and you sort of race the cars and whatnot, uh, and you go through chicanes, and you can drive them down the straights. One of our lads uh, did 160 mile an hour in it, right there, I mean. That wasn't about uh, years ago. The big shows wasn't about years ago, like the Blenheim Palaces or uh, things like that. That wasn't about. So now the the the, the social life, uh, especially in Central Region, is is so great, and the members love that. And we say to them, we know like we, when we get uh, new members join, Graham always sends us a new list of members. We contact them. Uh, some of them come, some of them don't. But eventually, we now uh, send them all new emails. I send out an email every week. I don't do a, a newsletter as such. I just send emails out because uh, I can't do a newsletter. I'm not that good on the computer. So I just say it's uh, Jeff's ramblings or uh, read all about it. Uh, but, yeah, no, they, they all love it and they love the uh, the atmosphere. We've had uh, about eight new members join this year and three of them have settled into the club. That's really brilliant. And that's his... Why never join the JEC uh, Central Region or the club itself years ago? I don't know why. I thoroughly enjoy it. I love it. I should have done it years ago. And a lot of them don't realise uh, by not going to the local meetings or the local regions what they're actually missing. They're missing such a, a big Jaguar family as such. Like I mean, that's what I call it. Yeah. It's a Jaguar family. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, it's... One thing to own these cars, but you really do enjoy far more of an experience out of owning one. When you come and involve yourself with the club, it opens up a whole new world of experiences. That oh, you yeah, yeah. You just wouldn't most get to definitely. do this stuff if you were just on your own, would you? That's the point. No, no, most definitely not. I mean, I've met some tremendous people over the years. Like I said, your memory's not as good as what it used to be, but it's like all our committee members, Richard West, yourself. Yeah, Norman Juice, I've met him and, and, and been to a lot of his guest-making nights. And that's another thing, like the guest speakers I've, I've seen over the years at the Jaguar uh, works through the JEC Coventry region. I mean, they get some tremendous speakers. You've done it yourself. You're a guest speaker and that. Norman Juice was a brilliant guest speaker. I've seen hundreds of them over the years, like Richard West. I mean, and without being in a Jag club, you wouldn't know about these people. And like the fact of dinner and dances, trips away, abroad and in the UK. It's just brilliant. Uh, some people say, oh, it's expensive. I say, it's not expensive. It might sound it. But once you get there and you see what you get for your money, it's, it's peanuts. And a lot of the, our new members have said that. They come to Blenheim and they couldn't believe Blenheim. You know what I mean? They even stopped at the hotel for the dinner dance and all that. They just say it's worth every single penny. Same as uh, Salon Prevé, that was worth every penny. 
three of their new members came there and they was gobsmacked. They says, where else could you go and see the quality of the cars that was on that field? You just couldn't do that for 36 quid, like, you know what I mean, worth every penny. Absolutely. And, of course, being part of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club, got you that great parking right at the front of the show field there that you just wouldn't have access to otherwise, and, and that's what it's all about. I mean, if you're listening to this thinking what Jeff does is uh, sounds like a lot of hard work, be under no illusion that it is. And as you say, Jeff, it is, it is like having another wife that you have to look after. But I wonder, you know, when we talked about your past, your history there, about your life as a publican, there's kind of a bit of a... a, a match between the two jobs isn't it basically you get a kick out of people having a good time it puts a smile on your face and then obviously you got all the tradesmen we all use each other like you know what i mean we got chippies uh alarm electricians so you tend to start using the lads in your club and they all do the mate right which is fantastic that's another bonus of being a, a member of a club as well like you know what I mean? people don't realize all that yeah rich is far beyond jaguars let's just talk about your current fleet then jeff what have you got currently in your garage in terms of Jaguars? I've got an XK150 which I've had now 22 years uh, I advertised for a Bluetooth or not an XJ uh, Coupe I was a, an XJ Coupe a lad uh, in my younger days I had about three or four of those uh, same old story I just thought about that now I, I was I sold them for about like sort of 1500 quid and those sort of MOT good little runners uh, one guy, uh, I can't remember his name now, he, he doesn't live too far away from me. He spent, he bought a, a 4-2 uh, XJ6 Coupe off me, manual one, uh, and has done about a 15-year, or no, about a 25-year restoration on it. And somebody's seen it and said it's absolutely beautiful, it's like virtually concourse. That was another one that got away. Uh, but no, uh, I advertised young to go for... Uh, an XJ6 Coupe convertible. A guy from Italy found me up and said, I've got one anyway. He sent me some photos. And it was, and I got a 150 at the time as well. Uh, and it was a 150 uh, drophead. I thought, that looks nice. And I thought, that's a nice day out over to Italy and this, that, and the other. Anyway, he gave me a bit of history in the car. It was all in uh, I- Italian. Uh, I couldn't speak Italian. He couldn't speak very good English. But we messed about for about a month uh, by emails <clears throat> and translating things. Cut on story short, I went over there, bought the car. Uh, I had it transported back over here and uh, I fully restored the car. Same old story. It was a scruffy runner. Uh, me and a mate one night was in the garage uh, when I was younger and fitter. And uh, we started taking it apart and whatnot. And he says, you thinking what I'm thinking? I says, what's that? He says, strip it. I says, ah. Oh. So we stripped the car down in a night. Everything was out. The engine was out. Gearbox was out already. The car was in a thousand pieces, and I restored it to a, uh, a high standard. Uh, and I've had some tremendous fun in that. And I use it the way it should be used. I'm not. I don't knock the uh, concourse people or the people who want to use the cars when the sun's shining. I use my car, rain, hail, or sunshine, and I think that's the best way, in my opinion, is the way to do it. Uh, I bought an E-Type about five years ago. That's another long story. That's a 4-2 Roadster. I'm doing that up, but I've had a few uh, complications with that with uh, bodywork guys uh, taking the time on it. That's been sorted now. Uh, I've always had XKs, XK8s, uh, aluminium XKs, always convertibles. And I sold a 5-litre XKR uh, convertible uh, to purchase uh, uh, an F-Pace because my grandchildren and that. As you get older, you know, that little bit of extra room and that likes sort of going away and transferring the grandkids around. So that's the everyday car now. But I have for another uh, aluminium XK. 
and I'm doing the E-type up. So, uh, and I, I also buy and sell a few little cars in there. You, cars always sort of come your way. Uh, but I'm after another XK now, and I think that's where I'll stop. Uh, years ago, I've had sort of six or seven cars at one time, uh, which is no good nowadays. You can't do it nowadays. It's great to share your passion for Jaguar, Jeff, and it's clear to anyone listening to this why you're such a pivotal part of the uh, central region of the JEC. And uh, I, I know just how hard you work and just how much enthusiasm you put into the club, and uh, I know that's very much appreciated by all of those local members and, of course, the members across the country that are inspired by what you do there in Birmingham and the surrounding areas. So, uh, Jeff Johnson, thanks very much. Thank you very much indeed, Ryan. I'll to see you soon. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.